I feel like, do you think you cut a lot of silence? Or do you cut me constantly talking over everybody? I get cut more than anyone else. Like, my stuff gets cut a lot. You don't think your your bits don't land? I throw a lot of stuff on the wall, <laughs> and most of it does not stick. Well, that sucks. <laughs> I'm cutting this shit. It's like the opposite of spaghetti. It's like throwing grape against, <laughs> grapes against a wall. This just, just bounces off. Oh, good times. Uh, absolutely good times. Here she comes. Uh, welcome to We Both Podcast Together, The Hazards of Loving the Decemberists. My co-host is Matt Esner. And my co-host is Pete Wissinger. Just trying to mix it up, you know? Yeah, I like that. I like it. It's a little different. Yeah, you know what's different. not mixing it up? Bringing back a guest we've already had on the show. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> Here he is. You know him from our episode of Optic Arrest, Justin's Hi. This is where Matt's going to pump in <laughs> our, our, our pump-up music. I mean, I expect at least a couple of, like, shots of, like, air horn... Yeah, we do those with our mouths. Yeah. yeah. We don't even need air horns. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you also need to <laughs> layer some in on top of that. That way it yeah. just, you know, really pumps it up, punches it up. Yeah. Well, welcome back to the show, Justin Spade. Yeah, very well, happy to have you. Thank you. I am happy to be here. Have you had any major, major life events in the last month or so? Uh, I went on vacation. Really? Like an idiot in the middle of the pandemic. Where'd you go? We went to uh, South Dakota. I feel like that's a safe place to go on vacation yeah, in a pandemic. If you went to South Dakota, <laughs> you probably doubled the population. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the dumbest thing that we did was go to Mount Rushmore. There was a lot of people there. Um, there was a lot of people wearing masks. Wait, so. did you go to Mount Rushmore so you could listen to Trump's 4th of July speech? No. Is that why you went to... <laughs> No, oh, okay. we, we actually got in to South Dakota. We could have gone to it if we wanted to. It was we were in that night, but we we chose to skip it. You could have listened to a historic Triumph of the Will style speech from Mount Rushmore. Yep, that would uh Yeah. <laughs> who's your who's your favorite president on Mount Mount Rushmore? Ooh, this is a great question. Uh, I like Teddy. I'm going to go with Teddy Roosevelt. I, I appreciate his uh, doing with all the stuff with the national parks because they're pretty as hell. Yeah, that's a good pick. Good pick, Pete. Also going to say Teddy. Oh, wow. So here, here's, here's why. I think that Teddy, I think personality-wise, is maybe the most fascinating president we've ever had. Um, yeah, that's true. And I appreciate... He's like a very like um, he does not fit into modern politics, right? Like mm-hmm. like he he defies modern political categorization because he was like a war hawk, and he also won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he was anti big business and pro environment, um, but he also was like increasing presidential power. So he was just like I feel like he's our first president. That sort of established what we would think of as the modern presidency. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously my favorite... Uh, oh, let me guess, is Rushmore. it Lincoln? No, my favorite president on Mount Rushmore is President Benjamin Franklin. Obviously. End of sentence. 
that's one of those bits that's gonna be like a great man you're gonna you're gonna cut that <laughs> that one's gonna stay in that one's gonna stay in because i i had to wait so long to get it out there because i really was just waiting for you two to shut up so i could just drop by drop this bit. golden nugget on us <laughs> and i feel like it landed really well so do you feel that way I'm going to cut out you guys laughing from different parts of the show and put it in there and make it seem like you guys were laughing for like five minutes after I, I dropped that joke in. Uh, yeah. But what's your real answer? Uh, I don't know. Washington, probably. Ew. <laughs> what? He's the, he's the first. He's the best. Wow. Yeah, if you like people with fake teeth. Mmm. Sick burn. Washington's a really interesting dude. For sure. All interesting. They all yeah. Yeah, they all are. Andrew Jackson's a crazy person. Uh, yeah, Andrew Jackson's yeah. totally a crazy person. <laughs> yeah. Didn't quite make the cut, though. Yeah, you're thinking Jefferson, maybe. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, this is, this is a great episode already, because we're just... <laughs> so this is, this is a podcast where we... Where we listen to all the songs that the December's ever played and talked about right. talks about so, presidents and stuff. I will and say this discussion is maybe do. the most Decemberisty discussion we've had on this podcast. I guess we should have talked more about the presidents from the early eighteen hundreds if that was gonna be the case. Yeah. Right. I mean, do you yeah, not Miller remember the uh, conversation really... about uh, sea shanties? I, I tried feel like to forget. That it. one's probably yeah. the winner. Um Anyway, so our last episode, we talked about their commercial smash hit Grammy-nominated album, The King is Dead, which Matt, AJ, and I all liked, but none of us, like, loved. Yeah, so, I mean, the thing is, like, I think of the three of us, you know, AJ, like, came out of the gate liking it more. Proclaiming least, his love you know, more. Trying right. to defend it more. Yeah. But I think we all kind of like it the same amount. I think we just... You yeah, so like AJ told me he more. thinks we all have the same opinion about the album, but for him, that's the most he's liked the Decemberists, and for us, that's the least we've liked the Decemberists. So we, we met in the middle. Yeah. Or, right. Up until that point, or like all, all together? You know, I, so it's interesting, because we're now for me venturing into a different era of the show because now we are going to start doing podcasts about music that I do not know anywhere near as well as everything else we've talked about because the King is dead is the album that I was like, yeah, this is good. But like, it didn't really like grasp me. So anything that came out after the King is dead, I listened to less. Now it might also be because after King is dead, the band went on a a multi-year hiatus. So, well, also, like, where were you at in your life in, in you know, 2011? Like, what was going on? Uh, 2011 was the year after I got married. Um, you know, one thing that might be sort of a connector is that 2012 was when my wife started her own business, and my free time became a lot less free. So maybe I just generally wasn't ravenously consuming music the way that I did before then. Right. Well... I would also posit that you probably had you you didn't use music as much of a way to define yourself at that point. Well, no, yeah, at that point I was married and established in my career, and my wife became an entrepreneur. So, yeah, I listened to music. I listened to music maybe like I didn't really have a commute. 
because I was uh, living like 10 minutes from where I worked. So uh, there wasn't a lot of time set aside for listening to music. Mm-hmm. What about you, Justin Saith? Where were you at in your life in, in 2011? Don't really remember a whole lot. It was uh, a year. I don't know. Okay. I, I okay. wouldn't have been doing a whole lot of looking for new music at that point. I felt Did you like. visit any national monuments in 2011? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Not that I'm All aware right. of. This is by far our most free-form episode to date. You know uh, what? There's not a lot <laughs> happening. Matt, do you do you want to? Were you waiting for someone to ask you about 2011? Was that a big year for you? I don't really remember specifically 2011. I feel like, and I feel like you gave me shit about my answer. Yeah, right. So after the King is dead, <laughs> Colin Malloy announced that the band would be taking a break. Do you remember uh, that happening? Um, kind of. Yeah, I remember, like, there being some news that's, like, December's goes on a hiatus. And I remember thinking, like, huh, I wonder if that means that, like, they're done. Right. Because, like, hiatus, I feel like, sometimes is code for a band saying that they're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was my take on it whenever I was, uh, whenever I found out, I was like, oh, well, I guess there's probably not going to be any more of it then. Yeah. Um, so... That was like kind of during the tour for King is Dead that they announced um, that they'd be going on an indefinite hiatus. I think it was around that time that Colin Malloy was getting into book publishing. Um, and I think Jenny as was... As an author. Not yeah. as like... Not, not as, as a like, publisher. He's going to open his own. <laughs> no. No, he put out... He started putting out the... Uh, was it Wildwood books? I believe so. I've got a couple of them in here in this closet that I'm in. Have you uh, read them? Kalen's read at least two of them. I How haven't many read there. I think there's. I think it's a trilogy. Oh, okay. And some of the other members of the band go on to work on some side projects. I think this is when Black Prairie comes out. Yep. But this EP comes out at the end of 2011, and it's uh, stuff that was cut, or at least outtakes from the sessions uh, for The King is Dead. So it's called Long Live the King, which the title there is kind of the, the follow-up, you know, as the old saying, The King is Dead, Long Live the King. So this is your, your, your companion piece, which we've seen EPs like this before. This is essentially the picarescades of this album. Right. Yeah. So it's it's a lot of uh, semi-completed and and sort of low-fi, not even low-fi, just like smaller versions of of what could have been bigger December songs. Um, I'll say it's much more complete than picarescades was. Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Some of these songs are fully produced. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's only like one that's uh, a demo isn't fully produced in some fashion. Whether or not you know would have had the final touches is obviously right. a different thing. But um, so, how much did you guys listen to this EP when it came out in November of 2011? My my first and only, or my recollection of the first time I listened to this was sitting in Justin Spaeth's kitchen building a deck while listening to this EP. And I, I seem to remember him being, like, way more into it than I was. Hmm. But, like, I mean... That very well could have been. That's And, and that's kind of weird, thing. that Because I was, I was not, like... I mean, I was still into the Decemberists at this point, but I remember just not caring about this EP that much. And I don't remember why. I agree. Like, this kind of came out, and I was like, oh, cool! And I remember giving it, like, one listen and being like, none of this stuck for me. Yeah, yeah. But actually, I think there's some good stuff on here. 
Yeah. That I think this is one of those situations where it's kind of a grower. Like if you just give it a a half pay attention to listen, it'll be over before you know it and you won't really remember any of it. But I was actually, upon re-listening to something that I barely remembered, pretty impressed with it. Yeah. Well, another thing, it's actually kind of long for an EP. It's six songs and they're all like three plus minutes. Like there's no like... There's long know. cuts for yeah. sure. Well, if we're going to cover this and the live album, should we just maybe jump right in? Let's jump in. Let's do it. So track one on Long Live the King, E. Watson. The air all painted pallor gray, the storm was coming in. Folks were lining Do you know what this song is about? Did you do any research about the song? Uh, well, it's it's like a murder ballad. Right, but it's about a it's about a murder that actually happened. Oh, it's about an actual murder. Yeah, this is something that actually happened. I did not get any of that. So why don't you tell me about it? Well, uh, so there was this guy. I think his name was Edgar Watson, and he was just like this general, you know, criminal, like just doing you know small crimes and stuff. And then he kind of figured out that like he could he could murder people and get away with it because it was the 1800s and like there was no really no one was really like doing anything about about murder and it just you could get away with it pretty easily back then uh so he would like murder people for convenience not he wasn't like a serial killer or like some sort of sociopath he was just like i can make my problems go away if i kill the you know the person who i have a problem with so he was he was kind of a drifter he would like you know kick around some town get in trouble, get into debt, kill someone, and then move on. Uh, and huh. he did that a few times until he ended up in, in Florida, where he, like, sort of settled down and got some got some land and started, uh, started like, a sugar plantation. You know, and, and so he, like, had, uh, he had, like, laborers and stuff, and uh, whenever it was payday, the legend goes that instead of paying his employees, he would just murder them so he wouldn't have to give them money. What a... <laughs> Nut yeah, he's, job. Not, he's not a great guy. He's not a great guy. Uh, so eventually, um, you know, he ha- he has some people who come and live with him, and uh, like he has this woman that it's kind of unclear whether or not he had a relationship with her, and then uh, another friend of his were living with him, and he went away to do business out of town or something, and uh, some other some of the other people who lived on his property murdered the woman that he might have had a relationship with and his friend so they they're dead and he's pissed and he's like in in an uncharacteristic move he's gonna go get the law to to get like a sheriff or something to arrest the people who murdered his his maybe girlfriend and he goes you know to the the closest county seat uh which is somewhere in florida where he lived and and tries to get a sheriff to come back, and the sheriff's like, "No, I'm not doing it." And and then Watson's like, "Fine, I'll just murder again because that's <laughs> that's what he knew. He's gonna go murder." And so he goes to like the uh, like the local trading post to go get some to get some bullets or get some ammunition for his gun to to get his murder on. And uh, a posse of people from from his his little his little property get together. And they're like, you know what? We're tired of you murdering. We're going to do some murdering of our own. And then they kill him. And that's, and that's, that's kind a of wild story. story. Where did you find that story? Is that a Wikipedia? Well, it's a Wikipedia thing, but it's based on a book. Uh, there, there's a book that I, presumably 
um, Colin Malloy read to to get this story from. Cool. Like I I didn't know the majority of that. I only knew that he was at the least suspected of killing a bunch of people, and then ended up getting gunned down. What I thought I read, which I thought was kind of crazy, was that apparently he was shot like 33 times or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it was a whole posse of people. A whole bunch of people just unloaded on him. Yeah, yeah. So this is a cool song, though. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a good song. And you got Laura Veers on backing vocals here, who's appeared with the band before. Um, I would actually say this is the kind of Decemberist-y song that King is Dead was missing. Mm, yeah, for sure. It's a narrative song. It's kind of like uh, creepy. It's got a sort of morbid aspect to it that was kind of something that has been in within the band's DNA since the beginning, um, but that they just totally cut from King is Dead. I'd say that's pretty accurate. I I think it's the best song on the EP myself. I really... I mean, or at least it was the first song... That I listened to, obviously, since it's the first song, but sure, it was the one that stood out the most for me on my first listen through from, well, from whenever I re-listened to it for this. Yeah, I think that um, it's pretty stripped down instrumentally, um, but like I think that the chorus is really cool. Uh, it's saying, Lord, bring down the flood to wash the blood away. So it's kind of like, you know, hiding what you've done. Um, but it's, I don't know, the guitar in it is really neat and the, the vocals, the backing vocals are really good. This could have, this could have been on the album and I think it, the album would have been better for it. Agreed. And you know, it, it, you say it's a stripped down song and it, it definitely is like, there's not a lot there, but at the same time, like you don't really even notice how like sparsely instrumentalized yeah. it is. Like, I mean, because it's, it feels big. I think part of it's the harmonies, but also it's just, it's just got like a really like, the guitar, you know, is it's typical Colin just like strumming up on his twelve string. I think it's his twelve string. But so I mean it's got a full sound. It's just like instrumentally there's technically not a lot going on there. The next track, which is a little little ditty called Foregone. I'm not sure what to think of this song. Uh, for some reason, it reminds me of like Leonard Skinner. Hmm, really? That's interesting. Yeah, there's this like breezy southern rock kind of element to this song. I think it's the I think it's the pedal steel. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is this is a song that's just like it's I don't know. It's really just easy. It goes down smooth. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really. It's not complicated, not challenging musically. No, I mean I'm, I'm not saying that in like a bad way. It's just it's just like a really just sort of laid back song. I mean, the first time I listened to it, like you know, I noticed the first song like that, and then I kind of felt like this one just kind of blended into the background. Um, I wasn't focusing mm-hmm. as much as I should have on it, um, and then whenever I listened to it after that, I was like, okay, no, there's there's. There's plenty of stuff in here that that I enjoy. It's 
Like, I, I really liked the, the way it sounded and everything. Like, the, the lyrics are kind of almost like an afterthought, it feels like. Like, they're not, there's not a whole lot to them. But, uh, I mean, altogether, I thought it worked well. So I have a, a thought as to maybe why this one didn't make it on the album. So there's a, the second verse has, And we agreed on Henry long before a flutter felt. And so it will be until memory makes the shadow of ourselves. Is this another song written about having his son, Henry, and he yeah. just picked his favorite one about that, yeah, his that son, sense. which is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I'm, I'm guessing this is also about having a kid. Um, yeah. And he ended up going with, uh, is it all a rise? What album? Rise to me. Actually, right. I think I like this better than rise to me. I, um, I it's a totally a different Henry vibe. Song. Yeah. Um, I think that Rise to Me is probably it's a lot prettier than this song. Um but this song is is, you know, it's a a breezy easy listening country song. Yeah. Like this you could almost imagine a traditional country artist covering. Okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's Like th- this one verges on the top country. I guess. I don't know. You know, you don't you don't have to agree. You can tell I, me I'm full of shit. I don't know. Like when you say like traditional country artists, I don't even know what that means. Or like you know, a contemporary country artist. Like I don't know any of. Like I don't. I haven't listened to country radio. I feel like, like Dolly in, Parton could sing this song. Okay, that's who you think of when you think of sure contemporary well, yeah. country. That's fine. Yeah. Well, I, that's yeah, more I traditional. That, that would be more traditional. Okay, traditional. Obviously, I think that. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a popular modern country artist. I think Billy Ray Cyrus could have done this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> what about Keith Urban? That's. Yeah, maybe. Oh, we'll get to Keith Urban a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, Alan Jackson could have rocked this one. Yeah, yeah, it's a good contemporary country. <laughs> could hear a uh, Garth Brooks really uh, belting this one out. I think Travis Tritt could really wrap his pipes around it and just give it a give it a good good scene too. I feel like maybe I'm kind of dating what I think of as pop country. Yeah, you know, like maybe Shania Twain could uh, knock this one out. Uh, maybe Taylor Swift circa 2008. Dude, is Taylor Swift supposed to be cool now? She just made she's her new album cool. with The National. Isn't she always cool? Like, she's always been cool. I don't know. Was she cool when Kanye took the microphone from her? I think she was cool because, like, she was she was sort of the victim of an evil Kanye. Like, and that gave her some, like, at least sympathy coolness. Is that what it was? I don't know. She needed sympathy coolness when she won a VMA. Yeah, I guess. I don't. What is she respected? I think that's a better question. Like she I, is I think, now. Yeah, that's the thing. Like coolness is is relative, but like, do you think she's like on the same plane as 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 your like Beyonces or your Katy Perrys or your your Lady Gagas? I don't know if those are all equivalent either. Well, if like, you're thinking know. of of juggernaut female pop stars, Beyonce's definitely at the top of your list. She's number one. But like, wouldn't you throw? T Swift right under. Her? I kind of feel like I, it. I, I, I feel I know, like I she's yeah. A lot of people like her. I mean, you know, I I feel like whenever she switched from like country to pop, it kind of like there was like a backlash yeah. and everything. But it seems like there's been enough people that have picked up and just went. With I it. like that one album, the one that's got like "Shake It Off" on it. Uh, Nineteen uh, was that nineteen eighty yeah, something, eighty six, eighty nine, something like that. Yeah, it's it a is. good album. 
Actually, we should just shift to. Can we just play, talk about that switch, album? Switch just, that one. The switch. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's gonna get us. A I lot mean, right. I think I listened yeah. to that album like uh, five times this week, so you know I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so foregone. It's it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Space, do you want to take us into the to track three? Sure. Uh, the next song on the uh, EP is "Burying Davy." Burying Davy. Which, which, whichever version. You want to give you two, two takes so you can pick whichever one was better. Uh, this is actually, for some reason, the one that I remember from the CP. Uh, it seems like this, I, we say this so many times, but this seems like an old school December song. <laughs> Like it, it's got the kind of like sludgy guitars of like a, of like a you know part of the Tane or like yeah you know something like that where it's it's sort of the their sludge metal phase yeah. kind of. I feel like this song pit. could have fit. This is, sounds like a Crane Wife song to me. Um, it's a little bit slicker than their earlier stuff, um, but it is like it. It's got that that sludgy kind of element, or like I almost think that. There's almost like a jazzy jam bandy kind of breakdown in this song, mm, yeah. um, especially towards the end when there's this kind of like long instrumental span. I just I just had a thought like by pulling this song and by pulling Edgar or E. Watson uh, off the album, that's how you make the King is Dead like the King is Dead. Like Correct. if you leave those on there, then like it's just a regular Decemberist album. I was gonna say that that. Putting Burying Davy and E. Watson on King is Dead would have made it more Decemberist-y. Because this is right. about going to a funeral. Um, it's got all kinds of, like, moody, dark lyrics. It's morbid in the way that a lot of their music used to be. Getting um, your weeping weeds, putting them on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The imagery is really good. Which I thought was interesting with that line anyways. Apparently it's kind of a play on uh, an old English word, uh, like Wade, mm. W-A-E-D, which it basically okay. just means garment. So it's basically get your yeah. weeping garments, your mourning. Interesting. But who was this Davy guy? Because uh, his mom doesn't seem to care that he's dead. It says mother wept if, no tears. If we're talking about classic Decemberists, then you know he's probably a uh, a vagabond, or he murdered his children. Yeah. You know what I was thinking? Is King is Dead the first Decemberist album without rape or child murder on it? Um. Or child death, anyway. Yeah, I I, I feel pretty confident. I, I don't really <laughs> remember <laughs> any of that being in there. <laughs> no, I don't think it is. Yeah, let's go ahead and say yes, it is. But this song's really creepy. There's some nice, uh, like, organ going on. There's, like, this really kind of wicked electric guitar that's kind of wailing throughout the song. Yeah, I really liked uh, the electric guitar in this song. I thought it was, uh, it fit well yeah, with it. Agreed. Really enhanced the uh, the sort of feeling of the song was giving off. Matt, what you, what you think about Burying Davy? It's fine. I have a lot of strong opinions about it. I felt entertained the whole time through whenever I, I listened to it after the first time. Yeah, I mean, it's not a standout, but it also, like, it, it sounds like classic Decemberists. Yeah. Uh, another sort of, I would say, classic-sounding song, because this seems to be a trend, would be track four, the home demo for 
I for you and you for me. might be my favorite song on the ep matt this surprises me zero percent for you to say that because this is the so here's here's the songs this reminds me of that you love okay this reminds me of sunshine mm-hmm. this reminds me of uh angel won't you call me okay uh this is that sort of like lo-fi jaunty decemberists that you seem to be really pulled to yeah yeah, you I, you got me. And I thought uh, it was funny for myself. I really like the first three songs on the EP, and I don't really care for the last three songs. I'm just like, eh. Uh, I don't know. Like, I just really like the song, and and for a home demo, it actually sounds really good. Yeah, yeah, it's got I think a sunshine kind of feel. It's just like guitar and drums. I mean, but like compared to say like you know the Bandit Queen. Or like anything on Pisgrim. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. like this sounds so much better. Well, they just had better microphones. They're on a yeah, major label now. Is. Yeah. Collins got uh, that, that King is dead money. So I have a theory as to why this song was cut. That's because they only wanted one song with an obnoxiously spelled title <laughs> on the album. And they went with rocks in the box. Yeah. They're like, we was can't it- spell rocks with an X and put this title on there. Was it the right choice? Time will tell. I think I like this better than Rocks in a Box. Yeah, I do too. I like I Rocks in the Box better myself. I'm going to be contrarian and I don't care. <laughs> That's fine. They're very different songs. So, Matt, if you if you were going to fully produce this demo, what instruments are you adding? Um, bag, <laughs> bagpipes? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like here's what I, I, this song could use like banjo or mandolin. Okay, sure. Yeah. Have um, an imagination, Matt. I, I don't know, like, it's... There's you are Tucker Martin in the studio right now. I would say, let's... I mean, it, it's already leaning in, you know, sort of country, like... The, in sort of country folk instrumentation anyway. So, you know, just, just lean even more in there. Get get dulcimers, get some... Get, yeah, get banjo, get accordion, get uh, hurdy-gurdy. Where's the hurdy-gurdy in this album? Uh, that's more. Back, I think that's more British. We're we're in Americana territory. That's true. Um, I would say this is by far the most fun song on this EP. Yeah. Like uh, I would say this between this and Foregone, I think this song is is more enjoyable than Foregone. Yeah. Uh, speaking of things that are fun and the opposite of that, <laughs> let's move on to the next track. <laughs> what we got next, Matt? Uh, the next track is. Row Jimmy. Now, here's a question. How wide do you expect the crossover to be between Deadheads and Decemberist <laughs> fans? I don't know. I Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably some, but... Is this is like is this like a deep uh, Grateful Dead cut or is this is this something that people would know? I know very little about the Grateful Dead. I actually did go through a jam band phase just because I hung out with a bunch of hippies in high school, but mostly avoided the Grateful Dead. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm right there with you. Except for I also uh, skipped the jam band phase in, in yeah. while skipping the Grateful Dead. <laughs> Spath, are you a, you a big Jerry Garcia fan? 
I've never had Jerry Garcia that I'm aware of. But no, I am not. I've never really listened to. You've never had him. What do you mean? Like, not 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 Cherry Garcia, the uh, ice cream. Jerry Garcia, the bearded well, frontman of the. Group I have the also band. never had Jerry Garcia in the the the, mat, the biblical, biblical sense. sense. I was trying to think of the term. I kept going to matrimonial, uh, but. I mean, I I don't really care one bit about the Grateful Dead at all. I'm just kind of like, eh. I know they've got like a tide tied teddy bear. I think. Yep, so you're, that, you're that, on that's it. That's pretty it. much that's all I got. I think you know every. That's that's what you need. I think Jenny is the big deadhead in the Decemberists. So there was a Pitchfork interview where he talks about this. Uh, I guess this was the B side to the June hymn single. So June him I guess got a uh, a vinyl seven inch pressing and this was the B side, and so they asked him, oh no sorry January him not June him, uh, but the picture people asked him like do you consider the Grateful Dead to be an influence and Kamala said no and he's <laughs> like he actually had an irrational hatred for the dead growing up because he listened to bands like the Smiths and doesn't <laughs> care about the noodly guitar shit of bands like the Dead. I've uh, never agreed with anything Kamala said more. <laughs> um, but it's like maybe this tells you how the King is Dead is such a shift from like what you would think of as maybe the nature of the band. But apparently his wife, Carson Ellis, is a Grateful Dead fan. Um, and he said that uh, the bandmates in general know them a lot, especially Jenny. Um, and that he kind of got into some of their late 60s, early 70s stuff, which is less jammy and more kind of like songwriting. Mm. He said that, uh, yeah, that's where they went for it. Uh, so, it's a fine cover. So normally when when we would talk about a song that the Decemberists cover, we would we would talk about the original version but i feel pretty confident in saying that neither none of us took the the time or effort to listen to the original i'm gonna listen to it right now uh and i refuse to listen to the original version because fuck the grateful (laughs) dead i'm gonna listen to it live so this looks like it was from their album wake of the flood from 1972 okay space what were you doing in 1972 uh not being alive that's what i was doing I think this song is... That joke landed real well. It's fine. Like, it's really easy to ignore. That's the best I can say about this song. But it's also, like, super long. Uh, so having having now listened to approximately 30 seconds of the original, mm-hmm. it's basically the same. <laughs> okay. Why do you but, think the Decembers do such, like... like straight slave, covers? Slavishly, you know, uh, what's the word? Accurate covers. Yeah, they do. I think actually... Maybe it's something that we'll kind of get to in the live discussion, actually. Maybe. Because I feel like you normally get covers live, right? Right. And they seem to me to be a band live that aims more for precision than spontaneity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. I will posit this, that when you're doing a cover live, it's more about matching the original as opposed to like creating your own version of... I mean, I think it depends. Okay. But generally speaking, like, when they do covers live, it's not like, let's do our own crazy version of it. Right. They're not like, it's let's like, do a Decemberist's version of yeah, this song. They're, they're not, they're not postmodern jukeboxing. 
It, 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 Can we talk about how much I hate post postmodern jukebox? <laughs> Matt, what is your problem with jazzy covers of modern pop standards? Uh, I think it is like creatively bankrupt and just the. Worst. You know what else is creatively bankrupt? What do you think of this say? What do you think of this right <laughs> I'm thinking you're gonna like try to take us to the next track. <laughs> no, <laughs> although well, then, yeah, let's the go. next track is actually a cover of sorts. What it is? It is sort of. So do we want to talk about the next track, or do we have more to say about this dead cover? Don't care about uh, it. <laughs> I, I thought we were you were winding up for something. I Wait, who after. who on the band do you think shines most in this dead cover? Probably Chris uh, Funk, right? Chris Funk, yeah. yeah. Yeah, gets to do some guitar solo yeah, shit. Yeah, Chris Funk. So the final track of this EP is called Sonnet. Guido, I wish you would and I which is apparently a rough translation of an actual sonnet by Italian Renaissance man Dante Alighieri. That's right, ladies. A little something for you. Yeah. So what do you guys know Dante from? I would assume he's of Dante's Inferno fame. Dante's Inferno. That's the Dante. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, like, just everyone was writing sonnets back then? It seems like you got five minutes. Very popular. Write a sonnet. Why not? Right. That's what they do instead of like form. doodling. <laughs> right. They just like write a sonnet. Yeah. Um. So this is a, a rough translation. I guess it was also, uh, it's been translated before. Like Percy Shelley did a translation. Um. It's just a nice little pretty sonnet that they put to music and then ended with this kind of like, <laughs> all you need is love kind of horn section. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fine. Whenever I heard it, the first thing I thought of was, for some reason, the band Beirut. Like, whenever I heard sure. the horns, I was just like, I feel like it could almost be something off of, like, Gulag Orchestra or something like that. Oh, that's a, that's sure. a good pull. I think that this is exactly the kind of album you put on a weird, or exactly the kind of song you put on a weird EP of B-Sides and Oddities. Mm-hmm. Or again, like the, uh, all of these songs are what's keeping The King is Dead from being a regular December album. I yeah. Think, I think they probably looked at it and they're like, we've got 10 songs that all kind of like fit together thematically. If we cut these six, then, you know, it's 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 a very concise statement. So you're saying if the non-cover songs here were thrown on the album, it would be more of a Decemberists album. It would be more like a, a traditional December's album as we know it. Yeah. So what do you think of their choice to edit these songs out? Uh, I think they made the right call. I mean, except for, you know, the ones we talked about that could have, you know, gone either way. Like, you could have, I mean, Foregone. Foregone wouldn't have done anything. Yeah, yeah you, could, you could leave that one on there. But I understand why they cut it. So you don't think The King is Dead would have been a better album with Burying Davy and E. Watson on it? I don't think so. I think it's it's good how it is. I think because of what what it what it accomplishes, it does so well because of its sort of its you know the unity of of mood and sort of tone and style on all of the songs that are on the King Is Dead. Uh, you know, I think there you can only have that album work in that configuration. Justice Faith, what do you think? Get in there. I mean, I was kind of thinking, you know, I like both of those songs, so I would feel like it would benefit from it. 
But, you know, listening to Matt, I mean, I feel like that's part of the reason why I really like The King is Dead so much is kind of how it has a more uh, similar tone to the the songs on it. Like, they all fit well together. Um, I guess that's maybe part of the reason why, I don't know, it attracts me. Here's what I'd say. I think they could have put one of those tracks on there and it wouldn't have distracted, but they're both moody songs about death. So I think maybe putting both of them on there would have been a bit much, but I think you could have put one of them on there mm. and it wouldn't have messed with it Just too like much. It Especially throw that in like mid album. Exactly. Just as a tone break. Yeah, that's fair. Put E Watson on there instead of why we fight. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, now that you mention it, there's no harmonica on any of the songs. In, on, mm, on the maybe beginning. that's why you I, cut them. Yeah, because like, I don't get to play harmonica <laughs> live if I if I put these songs on the album. I would say between this, the Always the Bridesmaid, and Pick a what would would you say this is the strongest of them? Um, yeah, probably. It's certainly like the most well realized. I think I think these songs maybe got a little bit further in the process than all the other ones. Um, and that might just be a function of how they recorded or how they how they approach writing, or just maybe they're just faster, better songwriters at this point. But the the idea that like these songs were allowed to to sort of gestate or to sort of like you know bubble up to this point, um, I think that speaks to maybe the how they've matured as a band. Let's pick favorite tracks. Yeah, let's do it. Matt, you start. Favorite track on Long Live the King. Uh, I, I for you and you for me. Justin Spaeth. Uh, I go with E. Watson. I would also go E. Watson. It's clearly. I mean, that would choice. be my number two. Yeah, it's a good... I don't, I don't fault you. I think it's the Laura Veer's backing vocals that put it over the edge for me. Now, I will say... I for you and you for me would do really well with some good backing vocals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a bagpipe. Yeah. You should never produce an album ever. <laughs> so I know I know we're we're really trying to keep this a tight podcast with no digressions, but um We I still think- have another album to talk about that. What are you doing <laughs> digressing? I think maybe the reason why why bad bagpipes were top of mind for me was that uh, did you read the entire Wikipedia entry for bagpipe? Uh, I'm saving that. I'm saving that for whenever we cover the song that they did with the Chieftains. Uh, Wait, no. did they do a song with the Chieftains? Yeah. yeah really? Uh, yeah. We'll get to it. Don't worry. Don't okay. Worry. Um, I'm gonna wait. Can't wait for that one because I am yeah, unaware. Yeah. Of it. Uh, anyway, so I watched uh, the movie American Pie Bandcamp. Uh, when? I was, last night. Don't worry about it. <laughs> what? Don't Why? It. it just seems such an odd choice. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Eugene Levy is really good, and I was trying to like. Why don't you just watch Shit's Creek? <laughs> well, that's here's. I or a Christopher see, Guest movie. I wanted to see if he's good in bad things because I know he's good in good things. Uh, anyway, what's the, the answer? No, he's not. But all the American <laughs> Pie movies are trash. But it was also kind of an interesting thing to see, like, like. Is are the are like the the low rent American Pie movies as bad or noticeably worse than the like canonical numer, numerical American Pie movies? I've never seen is, an American Pie movie. They're not good, but like the the ones that aren't aren't the numerical ones are actually like really bad. Like I was surprised how much worse they were. 
I don't think it well, would Well, if it would have been good, it'd be me. American Pie 4. Yeah, I guess. Okay, can we not? Can we just, can we move on? I mean, yeah. I have another 10 minutes I'd like to talk about. <laughs> That's I fine. mean, you can talk about it if you want to. You're just going to be doing the one, the one that doing the cutting. A lot of cutting. Okay, well, so, uh, so shall we move on? Yes, I think we shall. So, after the tour uh, for for The King is Dead, after that touring cycle ended, they released a live album collecting some of the performances from that tour. And that tour was called The Popes of Pandarvia, of Pindarvia Tour. Have we ever talked about how they all, all their tours have really sort of interesting names? Uh, so there, when I went and saw them with an orchestra, the name of that tour was the bit of stained grass does not ruined a pair of jeans make. Yeah. That's kind of annoying, right? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the reason people hate the December. Is. Yeah. Well, and the fact that like they, they publicize the names of their, like they put that out into the world that that's what on they're t-shirts the and yeah. stuff. By the way, I just Googled Pindarvia. They made that up. Okay. That's good. That's not a real thing. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so the, the resulting live album from that tour uh, is called We All Raise Our Voices to the Air, which is a, a lyric from the Infanta. Right. Uh, and uh, this this album is a it's actually a double LP. Like it's and a triple triple uh, vinyl. Yeah. Can you imagine buying a triple vinyl? Couldn't even couldn't even imagine. Just that concept, just period. Just the idea of three, three, <laughs> three vinyl records. records. What do you do with them? What do you put this? them all in at once? Oh what my do you, god! Like, you have to and I bet it weighs a ton. Three times. I bet it just weighs so much. Apparently, oh my god! They used to be smart back in the day, and they had record changes, or like where we just literally drop it down, and then so there's no historical it. proof of that. I can show you some technology connections videos <laughs> if you want to get a deep dive talking about this stuff. And then Matt can follow us up with more sea shanty <laughs> bullshit. We don't do deep dives on non-Decemberist related things on this podcast. I think that it's interesting that this is a live album compilation. What do you mean? Like that, that it is not just a concert. These songs are compiled from an entire tour. I feel like live albums are usually one night at a venue. I think if you're a Dave Matthews Band fan, that's how it's done. But I think historically live albums usually are, are multiple takes. I mean that's that's been my experience. I mean like most live albums I listen to are, are compilations. Well, I guess maybe we should talk. Do you guys what do you guys think of live albums in general? Uh you know, they're so almost a hundred percent of the time I prefer studio tracks to live tracks. Sure. That being said, there's two instances, two albums that sort of their live counterparts are what got me into the the album analog um so the the most recent example like i just couldn't get into carrie and lowell like that swift jan stevens album carrie and lowell was just yeah. i couldn't get into it but then somehow like when swift jan released a live album or a live version of that album for whatever reason it clicked for me and it sort of made it work in uh hmm. in retrospect too the other instance would be uh like uh, Wilco's album Kicking Television, which is a two LP set that came out after A Ghost Is Born, and A Ghost Is Born was that's their like that was their post uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot album that they won right. a Grammy for, and it was it was fine. I didn't dig it as much as as 
Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Um, and honestly, like I didn't much care for it all until like kicking television kind of made me like the tracks from a ghost is born that I wasn't getting into before. Okay. Justin, what do you think about live albums? Uh, for the most part, I'm kind of blah about them about, I feel like the first one that I liked was, um, was it Dave Matthews live at the red rocks for some reason. I thought that was a great, uh, live album. Here's the thing. I think that jam bands benefit from a live album because mm-hmm. really the appeal of a jam band isn't captured in the studio. Right. Cause what people like about jam bands is the sort of like spontaneous improvisational element. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that for bands like that, it makes sense. Yeah. Right. I think that I get into live albums if it brings something different to the music. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, a live album I listened to a lot was Ben Folds Live. Oh, yeah. And I think I really like Ben Folds Live because it's just stripped down solo versions of produced pop music. Mm-hmm. So it's not the same experience. Like listening to Annie Waits on Ben Folds Live is a totally different experience from listening to that song on the album. Yeah, that's true. So I think I like when live albums, or for example, Colin Malloy Live, I like a lot because it's again stripped down versions, or like ver- or even if it's just a songs done in a different way live. So it kind of gives you like an alternate take on the same idea. Right. I like that. Yeah. Well, when when you know when he plays a show live by himself he has to find new ways to play songs where he had a whole band with him. So he, it, you know, it forces him to be a little more interesting and it, it changes like the actual music of it a little bit. Right. Um, now we've all seen the Decemberists multiple times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. In general, I'd say they're a good live band. Right. I would say However, so. what makes them good is the personality banter and goofiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say like musically, there's not a lot different or necessarily better on their live performances. I think what you can say about them is they're very accurately playing the songs from the albums. Yeah, and exactly. if you like the songs from the albums, then you're going to like them live. Because of how well they play them. I mean, they, they know how to play them, and they play them well, and they, they're able to do that. So, yeah. But they're not going to surprise you with the songs. No. Right. Right. You you get Kamaloy's showmanship and the sort of, like, nerdy, funny element of the band Mm -hmm. and like i think they have a way when you see them live of sort of like making you feel like you know them yeah and i don't know that those elements of a live show are very well captured on an audio recording right yeah now they try in this they leave like banter in between tracks Mm -hmm. well the other thing is like we say banter but it's mostly just colin talking yeah it's like talking John will occasionally partake in the bits, but you very rarely are going to get much of that comedic element coming out of Nate and Chris. Right. What we have here is a long compilation yeah. taken from multiple performances from uh, from this tour. Yeah, and do you want to talk a little bit about the lineup? So it's the traditional lineup of the band, a couple of the tracks include a brass band as well. But then Matt's going to be very excited for his crush, yeah, Sarah Watkins, coming in the with violins and, and, and backing vocals. Yeah. 
some would say some would say overqualified to be a backing singer for the December. Uh, yeah, but... she's a virtuoso violin player, or at least a virtuoso fiddler. Yeah, she's she's uh, incredibly talented, and it's I I think I only saw them once with her playing with them, which is I don't I don't know if she tours with them very often anymore, if at all, because I think she's got her own stuff going on. So they definitely benefit from having her there at this tour. Yeah. Now, now they use Kelly Hogan a lot as a backing vocalist and instrumentalist, and she she kicks ass too. They have good um, taste in backing vocalists, is what I'm saying. So this was the tour after the King is Dead, and it's a little King is Dead heavy. It's very King is Dead heavy, but it includes tracks from all of their major releases. Mm-hmm. Are there any songs that stood out? As songs, then we can talk about maybe the bits that we remember from kind of maybe the banter. But did any of the songs stand out? Uh, I, I, for me, I remember the. This is the first time that I heard the Crane Wife one, two, and three done that way sequentially, and I really liked it. Thought it, it added to it. I feel like just kind of getting to hear all of the different versions of the fairy tale. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I actually, though, wasn't really sure how well Crane Wife 3 fits after 1 and 2. I I would argue that it doesn't fit after, after 1 and 2. Uh, like, I don't know. Because I, it, it just, I feel like I like it because it just kind of, like, picks up the pace. You're like, all right. Sure. Uh, it's cool when they do it because I like all those songs. But, right. But, like, 2 ends with this beautiful grand crescendo. And, like, it doesn't really need right. a third part. Yeah. That is definitely at least a memorable part of this because that's one of the only times on the album that you are getting a sort of different experience from listening on the album. A song that stood out to me on here was Oceanside, just because it's interesting to hear the first track off their first EP from the band now. And they really kind of like rock it up a little bit more. It's Although that's generally the case with almost all of these songs is they, they up the tempo live. For the mid-tempo songs. Yeah. But it was just neat, I thought, to hear Oceanside on here. And it gave you a, an idea of possibly what it would have sounded like if it was a later track. Or a song sure, a and I would, I would say something, right, I would say something similar about Soldiering Life. That's an earlier track that they punch up, up-tempo, live. Um, and I actually think Soldiering Life is really, it's a pretty pop song, but on the album, Her Majesty, it's pretty slow. And I think it works with a little bit more tempo here. Mm. Yeah. Matt, can I guess which song stood out for you? You can try. I don't know if you're going to get it this time. Uh, was it All Arise with well, that extra right. heavy violin bit? Obviously. Yeah. Obviously. Uh, otherwise, I, I do not know what you would say. Well, I would I would say something I I mentioned uh, in in the Picaresque episode about how they add a they add like a, a coda at oh. the end of uh, we both go down together and you acted like I was crazy. You were well, like I, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I can't have listened to this album more than once. Yeah. Cuz as someone who's seen them live like 6 times, I this doesn't do much for me. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Like, yeah, what what is your relationship to this album? Justin's I, faith. I, <laughs> we know what you feel, Pete. Although we'll get back. Faith, <laughs> what do you do, I mean, is this something you would put on? I mean, it, it hasn't been. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what function does this serve to a Decemberist fan? I, I don't know. For me, whenever I I have listened to it, I uh, it 
it brings to mind going to concerts and kind of reminds me of those fun memories that I had um, seeing them live. Um, and then, you know, it also kind of is a pale comparison to that. Uh, mm-hmm. But, I mean, it it's good from that standpoint. But yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's not something I feel really compelled to listen to. Yeah. What do you think, Matt? Uh, that's Yeah, I mean, there's none of these tracks where I wouldn't rather hear the studio version. With the exception of, like, I like the little, like, sort of, you know, extra bit at the end of We Both Did Go Down Together. And I uh, wish there was more of that on these. On yes. This. And I think there's some there's some songs, like, if you if you can find, like, live concerts, you know, on, on uh, YouTube or NPR or something, there's other songs where they have, like, little bits that they just throw in. Uh, yeah. Just, like, little sort of musical asides that they have sort of pieced onto their songs as they've played them for, you know, a decade or so. He also does this weird audience participation part in We Both Go Down Together. Where he has them hold the last note. I guess yeah. that's when that coda you're talking about yeah. rolls in. Yeah. What do you, What do you think of audience participation in uh, concerts? Like when you're there, it's fun. Yeah. It's not that fun to listen to audience participation <laughs> right. on a live album. I will say the exception is Ben Folds. I feel like he does a much better job of, Army. of organizing his... Yeah. yeah. It took a long uh, time for them to organize for like the little bit that it ended up being at the very end of um whatever that song Mariner's, yeah, Revenge. Mariner's Revenge song. You're just like yeah. I'm like uh, let's speed it up a little bit like it could be quicker. It's like I it made me more want to go, audience, get your shit together. You people are obviously <laughs> failing us. There's a there's a really good uh Nathaniel Wrightleff and the Night Sweats live album. Uh but when they try to do Son of a Bitch live, like they try he tries to lead the audience in a in a participation thing and they just completely beef it and like <laughs> sing the wrong part and he's like what are you guys doing you're supposed to sing the chorus here uh so i would say having seen the band live a lot there is one song that is sort of glaringly absent from this set list oh uh hold on let me see if i can figure out which one they've played it every single time i've seen them but it's not on here um really okay uh i was gonna guess rake song but that's on here they always play. I mean, I guess you've seen. It is a favorite them. of yours, Matt. Really? Okay. Ah, uh, man. You think that since they had a horn section? Oh, sixteen military wise. <laughs> yeah, like it's not. Why is here. that not on here? That's crazy. Yeah, because they do play it every time. Also, uh, is Ovalencia on here? Yeah, it is. Yeah, because it's with Dracula's daughter. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. It's it's a okay performance of Ovalencia. You know, it's fine. Yeah, it you know it's uh, interesting like how Ovalencia for me is kind of one of those songs that I I've heard it so many times that I'm kind of okay without hearing it for a while. Like I like it; yeah. it's a good song, but I'm just kind of like I've heard it a bunch. I think we're all with you on that. I'm I'm the lone descent in this. <laughs> you always want to hear it every yeah, time, every concert. I want to hear it. I like hearing Bagman's on here. Yeah. Yeah. I think Bagman's helps with having the backing vocalist and the strings. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the the one-two punch of Mariner's Revenge and I Was Meant for the Stage? It's a, it's a little self-indulgent. If you went to a concert and that's how they ended it, I'd be like, all right, guys. Just let on. me go home. Come on. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a little o'clock. self-indulgent. I, I kind of liked the I Was Meant for the Stage at the end because, um, I don't know, 
it, it kind of has a little bit of a maudlin uh, sensibility. It's a little melancholic. And so you're just kind of like, oh, it's the show's done. I'm sad. I don't have any more of this fun experience right now. And then it's just like, but yet, you will eventually again, hopefully. you'll There'll be more. And then you're just like, yeah, I can't wait to come back. Type thing. I don't know. That's that's how I kind of take it, even though it is very, uh, oh, I'm so good at being on the stage. Um, well, I think this is something Colin's mentioned, and I'm sure we've mentioned, because that's all we do on this podcast is mention things <laughs> Colin mentions. Uh, but I Was Meant for the Stage is a song that he said has, has gotten, it's definitely changed its meaning in, in his eyes, like as, as they've as they've progressed as a band, it used to be sort of ironic. Like it sort of had this sort of ironic tinge to it because it's about like this sort of, you know, playing, playing a big song to an empty bar full of people who don't care. And now it's this sort of anthem. He's actually in a giant theater singing this song. Yeah, full of people who are singing along with him. So it's, it's changed. It's sort of meaning to him. But I don't know about you guys. I would rather listen to Colin Malloy sings live than this album. Yeah, well, I think just because it, it is musically different, yeah. it has like different musical takes than the traditional uh, versions. Uh, any banter bits that stand out for you guys from here? There's a yodeling bit. There's a yodeling bit where where John tries to yodel. Uh-huh. Actually, I think the, he does a decent job of yodeling. It's not a bad yodeling. Uh, if that was spontaneous, I'm impressed. Uh, well, a- according to the bit, they practice it backstage, but that's just what you say. Dracula's daughter, which is a bit from Kalmaloy's solo show. It's it's a classic bit. It's a classic bit where Colin claims it's the worst song he's ever written. Yeah, but now we get a full band version, so maybe that's different. Yeah, yeah. I would like to hear a completed version of Dracula's daughter. Like One, flesh it out, take yeah, it to its make fullest. The whole, thing, the whole thing. I think it would have fit on what a beautiful world, but a terrible world. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? I think our next episode is going to be really interesting. So, since we're talking about the Decemberist Live, uh, can you can either of you uh, would would either of you like to share a particularly uh, memorable live going experience uh, that you had with the Decemberists? Preferably one that you haven't shared like four times. Before. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to think of. <laughs> I don't remember if I've shared it myself, but. Um... Whenever we saw them during their Hazards of Love tour, uh, the I guess it was I think at the very end, whenever they all did uh, Crazy for You, um, I thought that was super awesome. I mean, you know, it's not different from how it is, but it was a lot of fun to to watch it. On there, because well, I mean, you know, they had two powerful, amazing female singers. And they just mm-hmm. rocked the hell out of it. So, but you met any original, never before shared on this podcast memories from seeing them live? Uh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, this isn't like of the band in particular, but one of the things I remember, like after one of the concerts, you know, so we would see them a lot at a, a venue called the Pageant in St. Louis, which is, you know, it's a medium sized venue. It's not like a. It's not like a. It's know, not an arena, it's but it's arena. large. Uh, but it's, it's, yeah, I guess it's a fairly big rock club. Yeah, but it's not like a it's not like a stadium or something like that. It's maybe like a, a thousand people. Maybe it's I like a know. theater. 
anyway, the the point is like after the show, the buses where the where the band you know gets in and out of they're right behind the venue. Like it's not like it's not like there's a labyrinth of tunnels and an underground parking garage. It's just this parking lot. And so after the shows, you know, we would all wait behind the venue and and maybe run into the band or you know catch the band on their way to the bus. And uh, I think it was after the Crane Wife show. Uh, we were all hanging out back there. And there was a guy who I think was friends with your wife, Pete. Uh, but just like really like, you know, super, uh, super into the band. And like, uh, I think he was a musical theater kid. And uh, he kept singing December songs just like acapella obviously he didn't like it but yeah, he was just singing songs and like as we were like standing around waiting for the band to come out and uh like he he got uh i think he got chris funk to sign his pants and uh how much did you hate this guy yeah that's that's where i'm getting just, like, that's what made me be ashamed to be a december fan like this guy was just the worst and he was singing, and like this was right after the this was right after the the December's run Colbert, and like he he was like making a big deal about taking a picture with his phone, and be like Colbert Nation, baby, and anyway, it sounds so, insufferable. Yeah, so that's that's one of my favorite memories of a December's <laughs> concert. So a, a memory that I think, I think now is the time to talk about it. That we've that we've teased talking about many times is Matt the last time you and I went to see them. All right. On the I'll Be Your Girl tour. Sure. Let's get it out of the way. Okay. So we saw them at a big fancy theater. Um, so we went to see them at the Peabody Opera House in St. Louis, which I think is now called the the Stiefel. Yeah. And um, it's like this big old restored opera house, and it's a seated venue. And it's huge. And it's it was probably slightly too big for the Decemberists, I would say. On this tour, for sure. Because you were able to get cheap seats same day. Yeah. And the, and the place was not full. Well, that's the thing. We were not going Gonna to go. go to this concert. <laughs> but you got like $15 tickets. <laughs> yeah. I, I just looked at Subhub like the day out, like literally like, like hours before the concert. Which maybe uh, shows where our our fandom of the band had gone. Yeah. The fact that we weren't already going to go getting tickets for the show. I might right now because of this podcast, be the biggest December's fan I've been since I was obsessed with them. Wow. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so neither of us were all that into the album, but we're like, how do you pass up on a $15 December's concert? Yeah. Right. I wouldn't say no. To and, me. There was more stagecraft. I feel like they do more with stagecraft every time I see them. But, like, the crowd was not super into the show. And I think because of that, the band was not super into the show. Yeah. Like, the banter was was suspiciously absent, Mm -hmm. I would say. Right. Uh, They just, like, played the songs. Mm -hmm. And the most notable thing was they did not do an encore. Yeah, not only did they not do an encore, they didn't do Mariners. Which which I know they were doing on that tour as an encore, which means they had that ready to go. They had their giant whale right off stage, ready to bring out, and they were like, fuck this. Yeah. <laughs> like, These people yeah. don't, don't deserve, deserve another song. That's, a, that's amazing. <laughs> but, but like, I think that it was because of the shitty crowd. 
Yeah. And we weren't like... The venue didn't help either. It was too big. It was too big for them. So like there was obviously like pretty big gaps. Uh, and we had good seats for... We were like the front the of the balcony. Up. Yeah. So, but I mean, you know, it was maybe like maybe half full, maybe two thirds if I'm being generous. I would say it was the first December's concert that I was not super entertained I'm by. I'm trying to think of how much bigger is it compared to the Fox? Because I remember seeing them for uh, the What a Beautiful World, What a Wonderful World or whatever. I would say it's about as comparable okay, size to the Fox. That's what I thought. Yeah. But like for that, I don't know. I felt like whenever I saw them live for that, that was, uh, I felt like there was a decent amount. It was a of, different uh, time. Well, that's true. It was, a, it was, it was a different time. It was it more was full. Is that what you're that. saying? Yeah. Like it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of empty seats. Well, but now indie rock is just for people who listen to NPR. Mm-hmm. Right. Like indie rock becomes less cool every year. Right. Right. It's not so, the hotness anymore, you're correct. I like Matt and I were some of the youngest people at that show. Well, yeah, that's true. And the only white people at the show. Really- <laughs> yeah, it was just like all Mexicans. <laughs> I couldn't even get that out. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know if I've ever seen a person of color at a December show. It's pretty white music. Yeah. I think that's why Colin did a Sam Cooke cover EP. Yeah. Is because people kept calling him honky. <laughs> Well, they're not wrong. Uh, so, should we get to our assessments? Uh, yeah. Is there, I mean, any anyone else have any final thoughts on on we all raise our voices to the air? A perfunctory. I will probably album. never listen to this again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's just no reason to. There's no, because no, just listen to the just listen to the albums. They're good because that because live, they're a good live band. Yeah, because of their personality and presence but the musicianship they aim for accuracy Mm -hmm. and succeed i would say for sure they sound like they do on the album yeah but if you don't actually get to see them kind of like jumping around or goofing off i've never been to a like reenactment show where they reenact a battle of you know the five armies or the battle of waterloo or yeah. I think they, they sort of stopped doing that, you know, because they're all in their 40s now, like late 40s. Yeah, that's true. They don't have time for that kind of like, let's jump in the crowd and be silly kind of shit. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, part of it, I, I really like the uh, album cover because it's just kind of funny because it's just like two feet and then like way down yeah. on the back, you see like the drummer. And that's like pretty much I it. think that's he, he and Nate do this thing where they're kind of like, doing that kind of like running in place thing. Uh, I think it's towards the end of uh, Mariner's Revenge mm-hmm. when it keeps getting faster and faster and faster. Yeah. That part's yeah. kind of cool on the album. Sure. The, the only other little thing that I have to say about it was I liked the fact that it had my two favorite songs from The King is Dead on it, which is uh, uh, Down by the Water and uh, June Hymn for myself. <laughs> like I, I was... What doesn't that. it have from King is Dead? My favorite song from the album, Dear, Dear Avery. Avery. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. And it's only got one hymn. Mm. They went June instead of January. Maybe because June has got more of like a, a full band sound to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. They don't have the, that's That's something that's sort of noticeably absent is the sort of... Solo. Colin, Colin singing by himself. That's true. I guess Grace Cathedral Hill sort of. Yeah. But anyway... 
All right. So do you have our last segment prepped here, Matt? I, I absolutely do have our last segment prepped. It's time for America's favorite segment. Does Pitchfork select the Decemberists? I, I must know. This is, this is, this, yeah, this is a, a, a rare double review uh, because they did review both of both the EP and the album. All right. Should we start with Long Live the King? Let's start with Long Live the King. So this one, this one was, this one was reviewed by, uh, by Pitchfork Decemberist newcomer, Rachel Mattis. Okay. We got a wild card here. Not a best new music. So if if you're if you've never reviewed the December album before, and this is your chance to sort of pontificate on your whole opinion of the band based on this EP, I'm gonna guess you're gonna give this a six. So you can say what you like about the band, but but shit on the band that they are now. So I'm gonna say a six point oh. Six point oh. All right, Justin Spath, what do you what do you think? I I mean it's probably in the sixes. I would imagine he's right. Like a I kind of feel like maybe a six seven. Six, five, six, seven. Like you think they liked it more? What's the answer, Matt? All right. Well, so uh, Rachel Mattis gave the gave Long Live the King a six point eight. Oh, wow! She didn't hate it. She didn't hate Justin it. Justin is is the closest without going over. Yeah, or uh, just the closest <laughs> in general. <laughs> By Price's you know. Right rules, I I do yeah I do win. So you're not wrong about her, you know, planting her flag and sort of backhandedly complimenting the Decemberists and sort of full-handedly insulting them. Uh, but the, the, you know, she, she generally liked the, the EP and, and what, what know, did she think of that dead cover? Uh, she didn't actually didn't come up really. Like, I mean, oh. not in a negative way. Uh, I think her, you know, the, the sort of takeaway from her review, her sort of uh, most, uh, most relevant passages it's not a cohesive artistic effort so much as a jumble of remainders, unhemmed, lots of loose strings. Still, like rifling through a quilter's scrap bag, it's easy to see what bits were trimmed off from where and worth it to see how they might be put to their own uses. So, so yeah. she's like, this is an album of B-sides. <laughs> yeah, it's B-sides, but it's not bad. Like, they're, you know. I probably, I actually think 6-8 is a pretty fair score for Long Live the King. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, it's not supposed to be like a cohesive statement. It's just, you know, this is some not the pretty decent songs. <laughs> if your right. B-sides get a 10, then like, what do yeah, you do? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I feel like the closest thing to someone like doing a B-sides record that you're like, nah, this is just as good is The Avalanche by Sufjan. Mm. But that's like a long album. I've never made it through that entire album. <laughs> There's some good shit on there. All right. It's actually got one of my favorite Sufjan songs on it, Mr. Right. Switch from McClure. Okay, maybe I'll check it out. Check it out. It's one of his best songs. Okay. All right, so let's uh, so let's move on to round two. Uh, uh, this is the live album. We all raise our voices to the air. This one and this is, was This reviewed. is Dusner. This was reviewed by, by Stephen Dusner, Pitchfork, Decemberist expert, Stephen Dusner. So here's the thing. I think I would say Steven Dusner knows the band well, right? Yeah. He's been reviewing the Decembers for a long time. So I'm going to guess that his reaction to this would be like mine. Someone who knows the band really well, listening to this live album, you're like, why does this exist? Mm. So I'm going to guess that he gives this a 6.5. Like a, a, a lukewarm, it's fine, I guess, kind of score. Like a, a gentleman C. A gentleman C. Yeah. 
uh, Justin Spaeth. Couldn't muster negative or positive feelings for mm. it. Yeah. Justin Spaeth, what do you what do you think Mr. Dusner thought of We All Raise Our Voices to the Air? I'm thinking he's you know, I'm gonna go the up I'm gonna I'm gonna take Pete from how he was before. I'm gonna go probably lower, like maybe a six one. Alright, well uh Mr. Dusner gave We All Raise Our Voices to the Air a six point nine. No. Ooh, I was closer. I win this round. Yeah. Uh, if if I thought there was even a possibility that you would split it, I would have had a tiebreaker. Uh, but unfortunately, you're just you're just going to walk away with one point. The world so he thought it was better. fine. He thought it was fine. Uh, you know, it's going to sound the the quote I pulled is going to sound meaner. Uh, and I think it's generally, a pitchfork review. Generally speaking, I think he didn't he didn't have a lot of good things to say about it. Uh, he, of course, because it's a pitchfork review, he he took a couple shots at uh, at uh, Hazards of Love and and King is Dead. Actually, he's like he referred to King is Dead as a overcorrection. Okay, I would say this album, this live album, needed another Hazards track. Mm, yeah, it would have been good if yeah. it had Ann and Water on there. I think. Sure, yeah. or won't want for love. Yeah, with Sarah Watkins rocking the vocals. Oh, that would have been that would have been amazing. Uh, but anyway, so here's here's the quote because that's what I have to do. Their literary proclivities might be unbearable if they weren't having so much fun with them, but too much fun produces some of their most unbearable moments. It comes across as too precocious, too juvenile, not like a not like a young adult novel, but more like a bunch of kids hanging around the school theater long after they've graduated. Whoa! Yeah, Fuck and this, this is, guy. Ge- <laughs> this is generally a positive review. Like, he kind of liked this, but he's also he's like, like he just couldn't help himself. Nerds. I think I think that maybe that's 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 the rule at Pitchfork. Yeah, it's like this music isn't cool anymore. So like, you have to find some new way to shit all over it. <laughs> Feel free to yep. take a dump on it. Maybe yeah, special. here's something to think about. If this was the last release before their hiatus. What if the hiatus had gone indefinitely and this was the end? That they were just like, here is a summation of our career in live form. Uh, not great. Not great. <laughs> I mean, just uh, because like so much of it is their last album or their, you know, their most recent album. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, de- there's only one song from Castaway. No, two. There's two songs from Castaways. Would you say this album functions as a, as a greatest hits album? Like I said, it's missing sixteen military wives. Mm, like I, yeah. I feel like there's multiple tracks that would, like there would obviously be less tracks from the King of King is Dead if it was right. going to actually be a greatest hits. I think you'd throw Chimbley Sweep on there. Yeah, where's Chimbley Sweep? I think you'd throw Red Right Ankle on there. Yeah, you would definitely throw more like slower songs on there. Uh, okay, well, so that was uh, that was. Long live the king, and we all raise our voices to the air. I feel like we all learned a lot. After this, Matt and I are going to take a three-year hiatus from this podcast. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, actually, Matt and I are going to do a, a live reading of the first Wildwood Chronicles book. Uh, yeah, so next week we will be talking about uh, what a what a terrible world what a beautiful world. i always get the title what wrong. a beautiful world what a terrible world which i would say is maybe the weirdest decemberist album wow 
hold something back. Don't don't give it all away on this. I I haven't. That that's not a value judgment. Okay, all right. Uh, Justin Spade, thank you so much for thank joining you, us Justin. to talk about these two albums that definitely exist. <laughs> They're totally You're fine. Uh, I'm happy to have been on. I'm totally going to go and just listen to that live album over and over again. Uh, that sounds like something you would do. Without spoiling anything, I'm excited that the next album is, is going to be something that I have strong opinions about. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, it's it's a two, long one, too. Two episodes of just like me saying this song's okay <laughs> i actually have no idea where you're gonna go with these opinions on the yeah, next album I, i'm sure you don't i think it's gonna be surprising to a lot of people which should mean i mean the two people that listen to the show but right they're gonna be very shocked i was gonna say i don't really remember a whole lot of you uh talking about this whenever we've uh yeah we've i've never talked it, about this so. album with like anybody yeah. so <laughs> uh all right Pete, it is definitely your turn to come up with a sign-off yeah, because that's, I did it last time. And yeah. So this has been We Both Podcast Together. Uh, till next time, we're going to be four gone. I, like, I don't even have the energy to like be annoyed <laughs> at how shitty that was. Like, that's, it's just like... Being annoyed at it would require me having to listen to you do one, and it would probably be even worse. Spaith, do you want to try one? We've never made the guest do it. Yeah, we should make Justin Spaith pull a random yeah, Spaith. reference. You've you've heard the format. You know how it's done. You have to... Your challenge... This is this is the tiebreaker. This is the tiebreaker. This is the, okay, that was mine. With, that was mine. Do you want to try again now, knowing that what's no, up? No, I, I can't fucking top that. Are you okay. kidding me? That was gold. All right, Spaith. So to to win the <laughs> the competition of who's better at liking the Decemberists, what is your sign off? I forget. You guys uh, lead in with the name of the podcast, and then you say your line. Correct. Till next time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the Same. line. So it's this has been we both podcast together. Okay. And until next time. Okay. This has been we both podcast together. Till next time. Put your weeping weeds on. Okay. Well, we will. We'll, we'll have our. our <laughs> You're all of our reveal Twitter the winner followers, next time. <laughs> all of our Twitter followers will vote, and and we'll have a poll, uh, and then we'll we'll see who wins. We'll we'll put it out to all of our listeners. So listeners, right. write in who won the competition, and at the end of the season, we'll just to remind you guys, mine was foregone. Just uh, throw that back out there. All right. All right. Bye. <laughs> well, yeah. Bye.